Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 today. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, page 48 and 49. Love for you to follow along with us. Well, we're continuing a series today in the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is the story of God drawing his people out of slavery and drawing them in to worship. The story starts with the people building stuff for Pharaoh and it ends with them building a tabernacle so that they can worship God. And the person that God is going to use, we found out last week, to rescue his people is this man named Moses. Moses is a boy that God rescued out of the river. His name literally means to draw out because he was drawn out of the water. And what God did for Moses, he's gonna do for the whole nation and he's gonna use Moses to do it. And so last week we saw God show up to Moses at this burning bush and say, Moses, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna save the people, but you're gonna go. And Moses said, but I don't wanna go. And that's where we're picking up the story today. We said last week that God saves by sending people. He's gonna save the Israelites by sending Moses. He's gonna save the world by sending Jesus. And as people who have placed their faith in Jesus, as people who follow Jesus, Jesus is also sending us to go and make the message known. Just as God was sending Moses, now Jesus is sending us. Today, what we wanna talk about is what it requires to obey God's call to go. What will it require of us to obey God's calling to go? To go to our neighbors and to go to the nations. And the reason that it has to be asked, what's it gonna require of us to go is because if we're honest, we're actually a lot like Moses. God says, go, and we say, but I don't want to go. And so what does it require to get over the hump and actually go? And if I'm honest, for me, one of the most uncomfortable things about being a Christian, one of the things that's hardest for me, one of the things that makes me feel the most awkward is evangelism. It's having to talk to people who don't believe in Jesus and tell them, you should. It just feels uncomfortable. Uh, Last week, I was getting a haircut. The lady asked me, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. I looked and made eye contact with her in the mirror. She said, I'm Jewish. And then we both kind of looked at each other like, this is about to happen, isn't it? We're (laughs) We're about to have the obligatory conversation about Jesus, aren't we? And so we did. She's a wonderful lady, and it was a good conversation. But Um, But I hate stuff like that. And I don't know if it's just because I'm an introvert. I don't know. I'm sure I got all kinds of excuses for why, but I just, it feels weird to me and I don't like it. And yet God is calling all of us to go. And so what does it require of us to get over the hump and go to obey God's call? So what we're gonna do today is look at Exodus chapter three and four, and there are four things that Moses has to work through in order to obey God's call to go. So we're gonna look at each of these four things that Moses has to work through, and we're gonna talk about what we can learn so that we can 
respond to God's call to go as Moses did. All right. So we'll look at each one and then we'll talk about it. All right. So here's the first. Moses had to work through his theology. He had to work through his theology before he could go. Listen to the question he asks in chapter three, verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? This question that Moses is asking is the most fundamental theological question that you can ask. It's simply, God, who are you? Who is God? That's the question that he's asking. And that's the most fundamental theological question. Who is this God? And God answers him, we talked about this last week, by saying, I am. I am who I am. That's my name. And by revealing his name in this way, what he's doing is saying that I am the eternal one. I am the one who made all things and sustains all things. He's telling Moses, there is no one else like me. This God who's calling Moses is unique and he's the only true God. He tells Moses that he's going to use him to save his people. He's going to go, he's going to lead the people out of Egypt. And then he shares some bad news with him. Look at verse 19. He says, however, even though this is all going to happen, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. In other words, God is letting Moses know that the king of Egypt is not going to be easily convinced of this plan for them to leave. And so the God who is the only true God is going to prove to Egypt and to Pharaoh that he is the only true God. He's going to He's going to bring the people out by a strong hand. And we're going to look at what God means by that in two weeks when we look at, at the 10 signs and wonders, the 10 plagues that God works in Egypt. But essentially what God is communicating through these signs and wonders is that he is the only God. God is going to triumph over Egypt and Egypt's gods. Before Moses can go and obey God's call to go and do this thing that God wants him to do, he has to wrestle, do I actually believe that? Do I believe that, that this God really is the one true God? And we have to wrestle with that too. In fact, God's answer to Moses can actually be one of our greatest challenges to embracing God's call to go today. Maybe one of the most challenging points of theology for you is God's exclusivity. The fact that there is only one God 
And there's only one way that this God saves, and it's by sending his son, Jesus. To say that today maybe just makes you feel uncomfortable. The idea that there's only one God and there's only one way that God saves through his son, Jesus. Maybe if you're here today and somebody brought you with them, maybe you're just visiting and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe this is actually one of your greatest reasons for not being a Christian. Is it just feels so arrogant that Christians believe that they're the only ones who have truth and they're the only ones who get to be saved by this one true God. And that just feels so off-putting to you. Maybe it even feels offensive to you. And maybe you're here and you would call yourself a Christian, but if you're honest, this is actually one of the things that makes you not really want to have to identify as a Christian. It's like, you're comfortable being a Christian as long as Christians can just believe what they want to believe and everybody believes what they want to believe and we'll keep our beliefs over here. But for you to actually do what God is calling you to do, and that is to be somebody who goes and tells others about Jesus, it's like, then I'm going to have to become one of those Christians. And I don't want to be one of those Christians. And this is a serious thing. And maybe this is actually a legitimate reason that, that you would be willing to give up your faith is dealing with the problem of exclusivity. And so this is not just an Old Testament thing that we have to work through. This is a New Testament thing. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he says in John chapter three, that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. The way to be born again is to believe in me, Jesus says. Jesus says that, that the kingdom of God is like a sheep pen and only the sheep get to go in there. And he says, and I'm the gate. Jesus says the most famous offensive exclusive remark, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me, Jesus says. Jesus says at the end of the age, he's gonna return in power and glory and he's going to separate people like sheep from goats. There's gonna be people who are in, those are the sheep, and there's gonna be people who are out, those are the goats. And the basis for whether or not you're in or you're out has everything to do with what you did with him, how you responded to him. So this is not just an Old Testament thing, this is a New Testament thing. And, and oh, that's, that's uncomfortable for us. But if you, like Moses, are going to embrace God's call to go, you're going to have to wrestle. You're going to have to work through your theology. And so let's deal briefly with this challenge, because I do think it's a legitimate challenge, and it's something that we need to think about, exclusivity. The problem that we have with exclusivity goes something like this. How could there be just one way to be saved? It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior to everyone else's and try to convert others to it. In fact, it's not just arrogant, it's dangerous. Religion like that has led to untold violence and oppression. 
I think that's kind of the sentiment behind this. It seems arrogant and it seems hateful. So how do we think through this? Somebody who's been extremely helpful for me in thinking through this is Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God. And I wanted to share two brief thoughts uh, with you on this idea of exclusivity. First, it's important to understand that we're basically all exclusive and evangelists. Um, Mark Lilla is a professor at Columbia University in New York. And he tells the story of this bright young student who was in his class who went to this evangelistic Jesus meeting and became a Christian. And then he comes back to class and he's telling his professor about it and how he's now a Christian. And here's what uh, this professor says. I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, and even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. And the professor realized two things. First, he realized that he was also exclusive that he heard about this bright young student who he felt like had all of this promise. And when he heard that he had become a Christian, he was like, now, now he's out. Now he's not one of us. Now he's not gonna experience life the way it, that it's best to experience it. So he realized I'm exclusive too. I put limits on the kinds of people who really get it, who are really enlightened. So he realized I'm exclusive too. And he realized I'm also an evangelist. I want to save him from that. I want to convince him that, that that's not the best thing. I want to get him out of that. He realizes I'm exclusive too, and I'm an evangelist. And, and that's really the case for everyone. All of us are exclusive and all of us are evangelists in some way or another. And that means that if being exclusive is the thing that, that you're saying no to Christianity for. If your objection to Christianity is, well, it's so exclusive. Well, yeah, but so is really everything. Everybody's an evangelist about something. And so that means it's not a great reason to reject Christianity. It leads you right back to the place of having to ask the question, who is this God? which is the same question that Moses is asking. And for us, we don't just ask, who is this God? We ask, who is Jesus? And then the second and maybe more important thing to know as we think about this idea of exclusivity is, is how can Christianity actually be a loving and not a hateful thing in the world if Christians believe that there's only one way to be saved. Wouldn't that inevitably lead to hate, to looking down on other people, to judgment, to being Pharisees? And Tim Keller says, within Christianity, 
There are rich resources that can make its followers agents for peace on earth. Christianity has within itself remarkable power to explain and expunge the divisive tendencies within the human heart. See, I think underneath this this pushback to the idea of being exclusive is a good concern that we should all share. And that is this, that religion has been used to oppress people, even the Christian religion. So how are we any different here? And that's a legitimate concern that we should care about. If religion is not leading you to love your neighbor, it's not a very good religion. So why is Christianity different? Why should we be able to look back at our past failures and say, but, but that wasn't the essence of what real Christianity is? Here are just a few things that Christians should believe that should promote love in the world and not hate. First, Christians believe that all people are created in the image of God. That is, every single person has dignity and worth just because God made them. And because we believe that all people are made in God's image, it should lead us to conclude that non-believers, people who aren't Christians, will be better than any of their mistaken beliefs could make them. Christians also believe in universal sinfulness. That is that not only are all people made in God's image, but also all people rebel against God, including Christians. And this means that Christians will be worse in practice than their individual beliefs should make them. These two beliefs should prevent us from having a judgmental attitude towards people. So should this doctrine. Christians believe that we are saved by grace through faith. That is, God doesn't save us because he looks down and he finds the people who are best and those are the people who get to be saved. But instead, it's, it's purely a gift of God that anybody can be saved. And this means that Christians should expect to find people of other faiths who are much kinder, wiser, and better than we are. Why should I assume that I automatically love my wife better than my Muslim neighbor just because I'm a Christian? Did God save me? Did I become a Christian because of how well I love my wife? Or could there still be things I could learn even from my Muslim neighbor about what it would mean to be a good husband or a good father or a good citizen? Why would I assume that being a Christian makes me a better citizen than somebody from another faith? You don't become a Christian by being a good citizen or by doing good things. You become a Christian simply by responding to God's grace. So I should come to expect that there are all kinds of people who are not Christians who might be better than me. And, and that's the other thing. What makes Christianity unique is not the rules. It's the savior. In the early church, there Mantra, their message is that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. 
This was an extremely exclusive belief. And yet they cared for the poor widows and orphans of other faiths so much that the broken and marginalized began to seek refuge in the church. How could this happen with such an exclusive worldview that says this is the only way, this is the only true God? Because at the center of that faith is God on a cross, laying down his life for sinners. What makes someone a Christian is coming to the end of themselves, recognizing Jesus Christ died for sinners and I am the worst of them. That belief will not lead you to be judgmental towards your neighbor. So Christianity actually has tremendous resources, even though it's exclusive, to be a loving force in the world rather than a force of hate. Moses had to ask some theological questions before he could obey God's call, and the same will be true for us. And maybe that's what intimidates you. Maybe wrestling with all of that and trying to think about how to respond to critiques, maybe that's the thing that actually intimidates you. And that's one of the reasons you can't go is you feel like, I'm not, I don't know enough theology. I can't argue well enough. I'm not the captain of the debate team kind of guy. And so I just can't go out there and do this thing. I don't know enough. Here's some encouragement for you. One of the most exclusive statements in the New Testament is followed by one of the most humbling remarks. Listen to this, Acts chapter four, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. This is the apostle saying this to this crowd that wants to arrest them. And then here's what the crowd says. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they've been with Jesus. And that is what happens to compel people theologically to go. Is you begin to recognize I'm a sinner who needs a savior. His name is Jesus. And as you walk with him, It's not that all of your theological questions go away. It's just they get a lot smaller in light of what you have come to taste and experience by walking with Jesus. So if one of the things stopping you from going with God is theological questions, then ask the question, who is Jesus? Wrestle that to the ground and then go with him. The second thing that Moses had to work through was his fear. Look at chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? He's got a what if question that he's asking. Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? It's in all of us to want to be liked and accepted by people. Moses had already been rejected by the very same people that God is sending him back to. And it still hurts when he thinks about it. 
It was never fun to be rejected, not even in BC times. And Moses doesn't want to go through that again. He's been away from that for 40 years. He's blocked it out of his mind. He doesn't want to go back and face them again. What if they don't listen? What if they don't believe? Obeying God's call to go and tell his message can make people not like us. It can make people think less of us. It can cause people to get angry at us. And in some cases, it can even cause people to hurt us. It's reasonable to be afraid. There are better ways to make friends than being an evangelist and going and telling people about Jesus. It's not a great friend-making strategy. And yet God calls us to go. The apostle Paul said this, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why? Because serving Christ doesn't please people. But God gives Moses assurance by giving him some signs. And that's what he does in chapter two, I'm sorry, chapter four, verses two through nine. Listen to what he says. The Lord asked him, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. So he takes this ordinary object. He says, what's that? You got a staff? Okay. Then God says, verse three, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. That's a pretty cool trick. So he then stretches out, the Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. And I am not, you know, Mr. Animal Planet, but I have been told that's not the way you're supposed to handle snakes because they can bite you that way, apparently. Um, but that's what he tells him to do. And as soon as he goes to pick up the snake, turns back into a staff. It's pretty cool. God says, this will take place so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So God gives him a little sign. He says, hey, they're not going to listen to you. Here's something you got up your sleeve now. All right, you can throw your staff down. It'll turn into a snake. Pretty cool. But if they don't believe that, I'll give you a second one. All right, verse six. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. That's weird. Then he said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. Again, another pretty cool trick. God says, if they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. So now he's got the hand trick he can do. And then God gives him a third sign, just in case they don't believe those. And the third sign, he's not going to be able to practice right now because they're in the desert and don't have any water, but he tells them this will work. And Moses tries it when he gets in Egypt. Here's what he says, verse nine. And if they don't believe even those two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so he's going to be able to turn some water into blood, which is also very strange. So God gives Moses these signs, but here's the thing. Our tendency is to think, okay, if God would give us some miraculous signs, if God would let us know that, uh, you know, we could do the hand trick or the, you know, 
the staff thing, maybe not staff, we don't carry those around, but if, if I had a pencil that turned into a worm at work, we would go. Um, so we think that the sign is like, oh man, that's, but here's the thing. The sign is not a replacement for faith. The sign is a reason for faith. It is very possible. In fact, it's what normally happens in the Bible that people look at the signs and still don't believe. So even the signs themselves don't solve the fear problem. The signs themselves don't take away the need for people to respond in faith. The signs are just meant to give reason for faith. And sometimes God can still provide miraculous signs. He did this for the apostles, but he has also given us the sign in his gospel, the gospel of John. He's ordered the book around the signs. So in the gospel of John, John says, here's the first sign. Jesus turned water into wine. That's the first sign that he performed. And then he walks through and he shows you numerous other signs. And he tells you at the end that the reason that he has written these signs is so that you may come to believe that he is the son of God, the one who can give eternal life. And so we may not have the same kind of sign given to us that was given to Moses, but we do have signs. It's still necessary to respond to signs with faith. And so if you've never studied the gospel of John, but you've got questions about the legitimacy of Jesus being the only one who can save I would love to study the gospel of John with you. Seriously, just stop me in the hallway and we can make that happen. Because John wrote knowing that sometimes people need signs. It's not a replacement for faith, it's reasons for faith. And that's what the book of John is supposed to do. God may not always provide miraculous signs for us, but we still have reason for confidence when we go and share his message. Listen to Romans chapter one, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus's death and resurrection. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The gospel message, the message that God is a good and holy God that we have rebelled against him. But God has come to us in the person of his son, Jesus, to set us free from the penalty of our sin and to set us free from the power of sin by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. That message has power to save. Every time you're sharing the gospel with someone, it's as if you're talking to a field of skeletons, just dead bodies. And the only thing that can bring them back to life is the word of God. The only thing that can put life into the bones and put flesh on them is the word of God. And so the confidence that you need to overcome the fears of what if they don't 
like me? And what if they reject me? The confidence comes from the power of what you've been entrusted to communicate. There is power in this message to save. And Jesus assured the apostle Paul of this. This is a promise to the apostle Paul. It's not a direct promise to us, but it's a principle that we can take from the apostle Paul's life. Listen to Acts chapter 18, verses nine and 10. The Lord, that's Jesus, said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. Jesus says to the apostle Paul, look, I'm with you and I've got many people who are gonna respond to this message. What if we believed that there are many people in this city that belong to the Lord? And what if God wants to use you to get the message to them? At some point, you'll have to settle the question of who you're living to please. Are you living to please God or are you living to please people? Are you more afraid of people or do you have a right and reverent fear of God? A resource that can give you confidence in evangelism, if you're interested in it, is a little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. It's a little book, about 100 pages. You could read it pretty quick. I would recommend that to you. So Moses had to work through his theology, had to work through his fear. Third, he had to work through his insecurity. He had to work through his insecurity. Look at verse 10. He's just seen these signs. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since, even since you've been talking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Moses didn't think he was gifted enough for the task that God was sending him on. You want me to be your messenger and go tell the people, hey, we're gonna go out into the wilderness, God's gonna save us. And you want me to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? That's a long sentence. Let my people go, it's too long. I get tongue-tied, I'm not eloquent. I've never been good at that. And so I can't go. But look how God responds to him. The Lord said to him, verse 11, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. God says, look, I'm calling you to it. And so you're gonna be able to do it. And like Pastor Zeb mentioned earlier, God has given everyone in his church gifts to use for his purposes. Now, Moses is right that we should be asking, what are my gifts? Like if you're, you know, terrible at administrating stuff, maybe you shouldn't, you know, be in charge of organizing a bunch of stuff for the church. Like, well, God's with you. It's like, well, maybe God wants to be with you in an area where he's gifted you, okay? So there, there is a dynamic in place where uh, Moses is right about that. The point is God has called Moses to this specific task but Moses has an excuse. Well, I'm not eloquent enough. And God says, who gave you the mouth that you have? I did. And I'm going to teach you how to use it. 
And that's the other thing about gifts. Just because God has gifted you with something doesn't mean you're automatically good at it right away. You still have to work and you still have to to learn how to use the gifts that God has given you. God says, I'm going to teach you how to use, how to speak. Ultimately, God is the one who works through us, even in the midst of our gifts. But so many times we say no to God and what God is calling us to do because we don't think we're gifted enough based on comparing ourselves to other people. Moses has heard somebody who can talk better than him. That's why he thinks I can't talk well enough. And we have a tendency to do this. As a preacher, this is something that I have to constantly wrestle with. I'm not as well-read as Tim Keller. I'm not as funny as Mark Driscoll. I'm not as passionate as David Platt. I'm not as smooth as Charlie Dates. I'm not as insightful as Tim Mackey. I'm not as clear as Andy Stanley. And I'm like, I get in my head about that stuff. And you maybe don't get in your head about that because you're not having to preach. And so you don't care about that, but you've got other things. And it's like, well, I just, I'm not as this, as that lady, or I'm not as this, as that guy. And because you're comparing yourself to other people, you feel inadequate for the task that God is calling you to do. And God's response to you is the same response that he gave to Moses. It's who gave you your mouth? Who put mouth on humans? Who decides what your gifts are? So the issue is really not whether or not you trust yourself. It's do you trust me? God says. This still wasn't convincing to Moses. And so he says in verse 13, please, Lord, send someone else. Just leave me alone, please. And at this point, God's patience is running out with Moses. And so verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. And also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as God to him. And then God says, and take this staff in your hand because you're going to perform those signs with it. God, even in his anger, is gracious with Moses and he gives him a friend. And the good news for us is that we, from the very get-go, have not been called to go alone. The beauty of a local church is that it's like a body, the apostle Paul says, and a body has many different parts. And where would you be if every single body part was a hand? Your life would be pretty miserable. But thankfully, that's not how your body is. And that's how the local church is supposed to be. We've all got different gifts that God has given us so that the church can be built up. And so God gives us, he graciously gives us community to use our gifts. So Moses had to work through his theology, his fear and his insecurity. The last thing Moses had to work through is his sin. His sin. Now, This little last part of the story is really strange, all right? 
Um, and so I'm giving you a heads up about that. But after this happens and uh, God tells Moses to take his staff, Moses goes back to his father-in-law who he's working for. And he says, hey, I got to go back and check on my relatives in Egypt. And his father-in-law says, great, you guys are free to go. And so he, Moses loads up his family and they start heading back to Egypt and they're going to do what God has told them to do. And then while they're on their way, here's what happens, verse 24. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah, his wife, took a flint, just a little knife, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And at that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now, I told you this is weird, all right? So Moses is on his way back to Egypt. And what is his message? It's the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has remembered his covenant and he has come to save you. And the covenant that God made with Abraham was pretty simple. I'm going to bless you, your family, the whole world through you, and I'm going to give you this land. And you should respond to that covenant by circumcising all of your sons. So you're going to circumcise your sons, and that's your way of participating, of saying that you believe that I'm going to do what I've promised to do. Moses is going on his way back to Egypt to say, the God of the covenant remembers his covenant. And here Moses is, and he hasn't even circumcised his son. Moses is going to be the public messenger of God's covenant, but in Moses's private life, he is not even walking in accordance with the covenant himself. And here's the principle of that. The private life of a leader matters just as much as the public life of the leader. If you want to take up God's call to go with the gospel, then you also have to, to address your sin. This is why in the New Testament, the qualifications that are given for leadership in the church are character qualifications. You read through the, the qualifications of an elder and it's not like, got to be able to use Excel and be proficient with, you know, various, you know, financial software or something. The requirements to be a leader in the church are character qualifications. Why? Because the private life of a leader matters just as much as his public life. Same is true for deacons and deaconesses. So a question that you've got to ask yourself if you're going to go with God is who are you in the dark? Who are you in the dark? Who are you behind closed doors? To go where God is sending you, don't neglect your private life. So Moses had to work through his theology, his fear, his insecurity, and is sin. So what should we take away from this? If we are going to go with God, we need to take two things in our hands. First, we need to take the staff. 
God tells Moses to take the staff. And in verse 20, he took God's staff in his hand. The staff is a reminder to Moses that he is a shepherd. And that has all kinds of significance. Let me just try to boil it down quickly. The Egyptians despise shepherds. In the book of Genesis, it tells us that they wouldn't even eat dinner with a group of shepherds because it was offensive to them. And yet, the shepherd is going to be the one that God triumphs over them with. God is going to use the shepherd, the one who's humble, the one that they reject, the one who's despised. God's going to use the shepherd to defeat them. The shepherd theme becomes a theme throughout the Bible that God uses those with humble circumstances to do great work. He does it with Moses. He does it with David, who becomes the king of Israel. He was originally overlooked. Why? Because he was too small and he was out with the sheep because he was a shepherd. But yet he's the one who God was going to use to save. And then the same is true of Jesus. Jesus is the king who comes as a shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. But even as he lays down his life, people look at it and they mock because they say it's too weak. If you are going to go where God is sending you, you are going to have to take a staff in your hand. That means you are going to have to become convinced that God wants to work primarily through your weakness. You're going to have to become comfortable looking foolish if you want to go with God. You got to take the staff in your hand and remember that you are a shepherd. That's not really a compliment. The second thing you've got to take in your hand is a flint knife. And we're being metaphorical. But you've got to be willing to deal with the private areas of your life. You've got to be willing to obey God in the dark if you want to go with God. All of us fail at this from time to time. And that is why Jesus came. The reason that you would be qualified to go with the message of the gospel is because first you understand that you need the gospel. Listen to 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. You can address the sin of your private life because you have an advocate. His name is Jesus. Moses obeys God. And the way that this story ends this chapter ends, verse 31, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. Would that be the case 
because we go. Where is God calling you to go? And what could God accomplish through your obedience? Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you for being a God who sends your son to save sinners. And God, we wanna be people who respond in faith to that message. God, we also wanna be people who are humble and obedient to go where you call us. God, would you help us by the power of your spirit to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth, to our neighbors and to the nations. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?